0: All right. Good morning, church family. Hey, wasn't that awesome? That was awesome. So we gave thanks as we should again and again to all who volunteered. I do want to give a special thanks to Pastor Nick and Tina for putting us all together. So if you're grateful, would you stand to your feet and give them a round of applause honor to whom honor is due. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pastor Nick, and thank you, Tina. Hey, a couple of announcements, and then we are going to dive into Matthew 9.35 and following. Um, first off, huge week for Arpith. Tuesday, he does his uh, defense of his doctorate. Uh, so, about Tuesday night, you can call him Dr. V. If you know him well, you can call him Dr. Arpith. okay? But it's a great, great milestone for him. Then, uh, this Wednesday, we do have our day of prayer and fasting. <laughs> and uh, it's turkey hunting season. You can, I thought I could hear turkey in the background. That's the crazy part. Like, that's weird. Uh, Pastor Lee has a turkey calling back. Um, he is a turkey call. He's a living turkey call. What am I talking about? Um, I totally lost my train of thought. Yes. Wednesday night, day of prayer and fasting. Um, Pastor Charles will be leading that. If you pray for me as well, I'm preaching at a conference down in Ohio uh, Wednesday. So with that, let me pray, and we will go to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and following. And I see some new faces. Let me introduce myself. Uh, Mike. One of the pastors here, along with Cleet and Charles and Nick, we're grateful you've gathered with us this morning. Father, I ask simply that you would work through your word in power to reveal your son, Jesus Christ, to us. And I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, that second song really got to me this morning. What a powerful song. Christ have mercy on us. Christ have mercy on us. You know, one of the chief ways that we experience God's mercy is when he shows us something from the word of God that can save us, that can change us. So may that be the case this morning. I'm going to begin here. Every year in America, did you know that 45 churches will close their doors, never to open up again. 3,000 churches will get started. So that's a deficit, you don't need to be a mathematician for this, of 1,500 churches we're losing every year in America, though the population grows. The deficit, that gap has only increased during this latest season with COVID closings and Cultural cross currents impacting the body of Christ at large. Canada, our neighbors to the north, for them that deficit is even greater. And many people think we are following in that same direction as we become more progressive like them. What's more, some people say we are going to be like Britain is today. If you were to travel to the UK, you will invariably find a former church building that's been turned into a pub, or a club, or a bar, or a mosque, or a coffee shop. And even here, around the corner, there is a coffee shop that was once a church building. You guys know where I'm talking about. And I have to admit, I feel a little bit uneasy when I go in there for that reason. And even among churches that have continued to exist, It is simply true that many have departed from previous theological moorings and previous theological emphases. And going back to the church plant thing, did you know that within a few years, three to four out of every 10 church plants will not exist? And within eight years, the majority of them will have been shut down. So I know that kind of all sounds dire, right? But I'm trying to frame this question. The question is this. What will empower us, what will enable us, the church at large, to to survive, and not just survive, but thrive, and whether you're in survival mode or thriving mode, above all things, to remain faithful as long as Jesus gives us light? And the answer is the one I just spoke. We have to look to the one who said, I will build my church. We gotta look to him. And we need to look to him as he is revealed in the word of God. Not the paper mache Jesus, not the wax nose Jesus, but the Jesus of Scripture, the living Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we have to look to him who, Ephesians 1 tells us, purchased the church and tells us he is the head over all things to the church. So this morning we're going to jump back after taking a bit of a break from the gospel of Matthew our series and we're entering a new section called the king's commission. And the title of this section is also the title of this message. We're going to look at the king's commission and how it might impact us. And we're going to walk this text really plainly. All of us can follow this morning because we're gonna see, first of all, what Jesus said. Then second of all, we're gonna see, well, what Jesus felt. Third of all, what Jesus, no, what Jesus did, I'm sorry, what he felt, what he said, and then finally, this is a really cool point, we'll close with, who Jesus sent. So, diving in, let's first of all look at what Jesus did. Chapter nine, verse 35, reads, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, hold your space there and go back to chapter four, verse 19, verse 23. And if you don't have a Bible, just listen to this verse I'm gonna read and compare to the one that I just read. He, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, you notice very quickly, right, verse, this verse from chapter 4, verse 23, and chapter 9, verse 35, they're almost a mere image of each other, right? In other words, what we read in chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus has been doing for quite a while through the region of Galilee. Ancient, uh, Josephus, the ancient historian, tells us that that. that Old Galilee was a region about 40 miles by 70 miles, so about 280 square miles. He estimates that it was highly populated. Three million people lived there because it was a highly fertile growing region. A lot of people went there to do farming. They had cities, as we see, probably about 200 cities and villages. Cities were large populaces that had walls. Villages did not. And Jesus spent months if not over a year, systematically going through village to village, city to city, doing what this verse describes. So what did he do then in this highly populated area? Number one, you just saw it, he went teaching in their synagogues. A synagogue was a Jewish place of worship, okay? Now, probably some of these thriving cities had many many synagogues because it only took 10 men in order to have a synagogue. So invariably many cities had tons of synagogues. Many villages had tons of synagogues, tons of them. Now imagine, just imagine here, imagine here, somebody walking in here and saying, hey, I got the sermon this morning and standing up here and preaching probably wouldn't happen. So how did it happen then? Well, because there was a custom in which if you were a Jewish rabbi, you could go into a synagogue, have a portion of the scroll read of the Old Testament, then you would explain it, and then you would apply it, and then you would sit down. And what is absolutely insightful and fascinating is in Luke chapter 4, Jesus came to Nazareth where he was raised and brought up, He went, as it says, was his custom, into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unscrolled to the place which we would know as Isaiah 61, verses one and two, I believe. And he said this, quoting Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor He has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then it says, this is weighty stuff. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. And they knew something weighty was going on because the text says, then all his eyes were fixed on him. And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What was Jesus saying when he did that, when he went into the synagogue? I'm the point of the Old Testament, right? I'm the one the Old Testament pointed to. So first of all, he had a ministry of teaching or instruction, focusing how he is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant promises. Y'all with me? Second of all, it says, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He had a ministry of teaching and instruction. He had a ministry of proclamation of evangelism. He would do that again in the synagogues, but as we know from the gospels, he would do that in street corners and fields and the coastline and hilltops and everywhere else. And he would preach about the kingdom of God and the king who had arrived in him, what he the king would do, his death, burial, and resurrection to bring people into God's kingdom, and then what life in the kingdom would look like once you have received the king. It was second of all, then, a ministry, as I say, of proclamation or evangelism. Now, what does ministry one and ministry two have in common? They're both both verbal, right? They're both words, right? Now we get to the third ministry, where he says, in healing every disease and every affliction. Now, we just jumped out about a month ago of of the series uh, through the Gospel of Matthew it was a section called the king's power. What kind of healings did we see then? Well, did we not see a leper made clear, clean? One who said, unclean, unclean, don't come near me. People could come near him because Jesus touched him and cleansed him of his Hansen's disease. Did we not see a centurion who had a paralyzed servant? And that, that, that centurion, that company commander, had such faith in Christ, he said, you don't even need to come to him, just say the word and he'll be healed. And boom, the man gets up from his paralysis, he gets up. Or how about this, you remember Peter's mother-in-law, sick with fever, Jesus heals her. Or how about demoniacs in ch- chained up, right? He sets them free. Or how about, this is a very, that was a very sad scene, Jairus' dead little girl. He raises her from the dead, do you remember that? Or the woman with the issue of blood, or the blind man, we could go on and on and on. And by the way, all of those miracles were signs that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. So he third of all had a ministry of healing. Now, question. Among the three ministries Teaching or instruction, proclamation or evangelism, and healing, which do you think was the most important? And I think it's good to ask these questions. Or let, let me simplify it. Let me simplify it. What was most important? His verbal ministry or his physical ministry? Now, I don't want to split the church, but but let's take a poll here, okay? What do you think? Honestly, what do you think? It was just verbal. And when I, when I was thinking about that, when I was studying this a few days ago, five scriptures and five scriptural truths came to mind to support, hey, no, I think it's verbal, he would, would be the most important. First of all, going back to Matthew chapter one, do you remember when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant? And the angel tells Joseph, hey, what went down is, is because of a supernatural conception, the Holy Spirit of God. And then the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, why? Because he's the one who will save his people from their sins. That message of salvation isn't received by osmosis, is it? It must be communicated. That's all bound up in Matthew one twenty-one. Or how about you go to Matthew chapter four and verse 17. Jesus inaugurated his public ministry. We went through this in detailed fashion with a baptism, then a temptation. And the scripture says in Matthew 4 and verse 19, from that time forward, Jesus began to do what? To preach and say, 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 repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Number three, I would add this. All the miracles actually pointed to something bigger, right? Nobody here thinks Jairus' daughter, once she was raised, never died, right? It wasn't the resurrection we're gonna experience at the end of the age. And in fact, when the paralyzed man, Pastor Charles preached on this, from Matthew nine is raised up, Jesus makes it clear that the bigger miracle was that the man had his sins forgiven, right? That happens through the gospel. Number four, I would add this. If you want to know Jesus' mission statement, if maybe you've never heard about Jesus, you're just hearing about Jesus, Jesus own, from Jesus' own mouth, he said, this is why the Son of Man, referring to himself, came. He came not to be served, but to serve, yes. How? By giving his life a ransom for many. That's the gospel which needs to be communicated, believed, and received, Romans chapter 10. And then finally, we'll see this a little bit later, the whole imagery of a harvest is reference to people receiving the gospel. Now, why did I belabor that point? I don't, don't, don't go sideways on this. I do not at all mean to indicate that we should not care about the physical. I'm not saying that, okay? We see this in scripture, do we not? When we pray for the sick, when we provide meals for people who need meals, when we stand up for the unborn, when we we step in the way for the underprivileged and serve them, and all of that, all of those are valid, necessary, good, biblical reflections of Jesus Christ. So then why are you making this point? Here's the reason. We're going to see the next verse, and we're almost to point two. Jesus was moved by compassion. Now when we hear of Jesus compassion, what's the first thing we typically think of? Verbal ministry or physical ministry? Let's be honest. What do we usually think of? We call them, you know, compassion ministry, and usually what we mean, that's code for physical help. And yet, what we're going to see is compassion is what actually led the primacy of his verbal ministry. And I want us to begin to make that connection because a compassionate person is gonna tell people about Jesus Christ. I heard a layman preach on this text, and he said, this is so powerful, when I, just speaking of himself, so let's put ourselves in his shoes, when I am not concerned with telling someone else about Jesus, Think about people that you know from your circles of your life, work, hobbies, neighborhood. When I am not concerned to tell somebody about Jesus Christ, it's like I'm saying, hmm, you can go to hell for all I care. That's really what we're saying, right? And so when we don't get that compassion is to be the driver behind proclaiming the gospel, we'll either not proclaim the gospel or we'll not do it in a very loving way and there's the capacity for do that, right? Or we'll think, oh, we do a bunch of physical ministry, that's being compassionate. Oh, you can go to hell, though. So I'm just trying to make the point. The king's mission is not primarily, i am let me put it this way, is not solely or primarily verbal, but it is ultimately verbal. Does that make sense? Yeah. We see that modeled in the life of Jesus. Now, number two, let's look at what Jesus felt. Verse 36, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had what for them? Compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. As I read this verse, I don't think this verse is saying that suddenly, out of the blue, Jesus saw a crowd and like, whoa, I feel compassion in my heart. I think all all those months he was going through Galilee, Chapter four, verse 23, chapter nine, verse 35, each and every time he interacted with a crowd, what do you think he felt? He felt compassion. That's what motivated him. Now, I don't know about you, that's pretty doggone convicting for me. What about, what about you? you? Do you feel compassion when you look at the masses, when you look at people? Now, I, there are times, candidly, I, I can feel a deep compassion. But there are other times compassion is decidedly what I'm not feeling when I look at a crowd. Oh, I can feel indifference. I can feel temptation. I can feel irritation because of being inconvenienced. But a lot of times, I don't feel compassion. What about you? See, compassion is what Jesus felt when he saw the crowd. Now, I want, to, I want to give you a Greek word that actually sounds German, but it's not, and I want you to say it with me, even if you spit everywhere. We're past COVID, so you can spit everywhere just fine, okay? Splock nitsomai. Say that. Oh, come on from your gut. Splock nitsomai. Splock nitzomai. That felt good to hear you say that. That's from the Greek word splock which means guts. Literally, it means your intestines, your bowels. When the scripture says Jesus felt splok nitsomai, it's saying he was feeling this down in the pit of his stomach. We use that kind of language, don't we? You might say negatively, I hate that person with all my guts. Or you might receive bad news. You're not trying to say you have a stomach virus, but you say, it just makes me sick to the Stomach. And we literally are, we feel that way, right? Or you tell somebody, I love you with all of my heart. It's the same concept. Jesus Christ (laughs) knew what it was to feel something deep within, compassion. You know what that feels like, right? And here, what we're being told is the Lord of glory deeply felt compassion over the masses as he looked at them in the pit of his stomach. And why, the, script, the text goes on to say, because, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now that seems pretty self-explanatory, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, right? You think of, he's making an analogy. People, lost people, are like sheep vulnerable to predators, and stubborn and stupid like we all are naturally since the fall. Stupid in the sense of, no, God, I will do it my way. Right? Yeah. But there's even more going on here, and that's why I had us read Ezekiel 34 a little while ago. You ever have a friend or family member watching, uh, say, a Netflix series? And it looks like they're really enjoying it. So you dive in, say, season four. And you watch an episode in season four. You can, you can get something out of that episode, right? It can kind of stand alone usually. But unlike your friend who's been watching the whole series, you know, there's probably some bigger storylines you're missing. Hey? You understand what I'm saying? And so we can, we can understand this in its own right. Yeah, like sheep, harassed, helpless, vulnerable to predators. But there's something bigger going on. And the, old, the early church readers, specifically those of a Jewish background exposed to the Torah and the Jewish writings, would have thought of this. They would have thought of the many times the Old Testament refers to shepherds, and by the way, not in a good way, because they were replete with shepherds who weren't doing what they were supposed to do, and in fact, weren't protecting the sheep. So, for instance, we read Ezekiel 34. You didn't feed the sheep like you were supposed to, the prophet Ezekiel said. Well, the sick, you did not heal. The injured, you didn't bind up. The strain, you didn't bring back. And the lost, you didn't go after. And the language of here really is tapping right into that because the word that is translated harassed literally has reference to butchering flesh, being flayed open. And the word translated helpless means thrown down. Do you know Jesus spent a few breaths in his earthly ministry calling out religious leaders for not leading in the truth and not teaching the truth? Wait till we get to Matthew 23, the seven woes of Jesus. You probably won't find them on Christian coffee cups and calendars and t-shirts, but it's there. In Matthew 15, 15, Jesus said, you are the blind leading the blind. You remember that? We'll get there in a few weeks. That doesn't, by the way, mean that the masses are innocent. They are yet blind. But the point is, Jesus was leading them into deeper, not Jesus, rather the false teachers who purported to speak for Jesus, but they really don't, were leading blind people into deeper darkness. Does that make sense? which is why we care about the teaching of God's word, accurately, appropriately. Whether it's from pulpits or podcasts or lunchtime conversations or news or movies, social media, right? I was sharing with the men in the men's meeting when Pastor Cleek gave us the time to share and give some, 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 some feedback. I was listening to 97.1, the ticket, uh, the other day. And in, in the mo- I, was a, I was going somewhere in the morning And the lady uh, and the guy who were leading that the morning slot were encouraging, exhorting the wisdom for people prospectively getting married of living together for a while to see if it would work. Which by the way, the stats say doesn't really do much except mess things up. But I'm listening to a talk show, a sports talk show. I don't expect you to say open your Bibles to Galatians chapter one, I get that. But they were trying to teach people a certain way, right? A worldview. Are you aware of that? We should be angry. We should be angry at false teaching because it, it just leads people further into darkness and depravity and lets them be eternally slaughtered by lies. That's what Jesus is getting at. But, but let me close this, this, this second point real quick. The question I, I want to ask every one of us here, I've asked myself this week, is how do you feel When you look at people, when you look at the masses, how do you feel? When you see a MAGA hat, what do you think? What do you feel? When you see a BLM hat, what do you think? When you see one of those house signs, and you can tell what I think, by the way, I'm gonna describe this, that says, our house believes in science, and then three sentences later, reproductive justice. Like, the two don't go together, I gotta tell you that because science says, that's a baby within there. That's a Imago day. But how do, I, how do I feel? How do you feel? How do you feel when you see somebody wear a 1619 Project shirt, or a 1776 shirt, or a Fox News shirt, or a CNN shirt? I, I could just keep on hitting all the buttons. You, you guys get the point? Do you size them up, feel a certain kind of way, a certain disdain, a certain anger, a certain contempt? It, listen, for all of us in some direction, that's just easy, right? Can we be honest? But are we able to get out of our feelings? Are we able to get past our feelings to the far deeper splok nitzomai? Gut hurt that they need to know Jesus. That's exactly what drove Jesus, right? It says he was moved by compassion. And sadly, we often have more compassion, I don't know, for animals than humans. So I wanna quickly give you five things to reflect on so that we can grow our compassion because we are not typically naturally compassionate in the sense of I wanna give the gospel to other people. First of all, would you consider that that person is made in the image of the living God? Fido is not. Fluffy is not. That person is. Number two, would you consider that they are a vapor, a mist, like you? They're like the grass, which today is and tomorrow is gone their temporality, consider that. Number three, would you consider that they are gonna live somewhere forever? They're gonna live in heaven or they're gonna live in hell. Would you consider that? Would you consider, fourth of all, they need someone to warn them and tell them the good news of a God who mercifully sent his son, just like somebody did with you. And fifth of all, would you just think of the humility of Jesus Christ? I don't wanna talk to them. They've done me wrong or whatever. Like, man, again, the Wednesday night men's meeting, Ryan shared something so powerfully. Where are you, Ryan? Like, he talked about Jesus Christ, eternal Son of God, the Father, the Son, and Spirit, three in one, one in three, eternal fellowship, eternal existence, all of that, being worshiped by the highest echelon of angelic beings. And yet in the fullness of time, he came to the womb of this peasant girl, lived in a, born in a stable, was spit upon, mistreated, and ultimately slapped and crushed in our place when it wasn't like we deserved it, right? What we deserved is the treatment he got, but he took it for us. Consider that. May that stir our hearts to reach across divides with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, The king's mission, our mission, must be motivated by compassion for the lost. I gotta seriously fast forward. Let's look at quickly what Jesus said. I'm gonna summarize this. He tells us the harvest is plentiful. I talked about that a few minutes ago before we got into the sermon. Jesus has a people for his name from every walk of life. He talked about how the laborers are few, okay? In in context, that's people, these laborers, who, driven by compassion, Tell others the gospel, lest they perish forever. And then, here's the sentence. I do want to read the phrase. He says, therefore, pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He commands us to pray that other laborers would be sent out. And it's so, it's so fascinating. The word send out is actually bellow. Throw out, it's a strong word. It's the same word used in the next chapter of casting out demons. In other words, we are to pray that people have um, a violent, decisive compulsion to make a commitment, I am going to share the gospel. I need to tell others the gospel. I don't have the strength for this, but Christ in me and through me. And as we we pray for God to move in others' hearts in that way, we ought to ask ourselves, do I have that kind of commitment? Do I have that kind of commitment? The question I want to ask you is this. When is the last time you told somebody the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he did? Was it last week? Was it last month? Was it last year? Have you ever? Now, I, I listen, I am not trying to mot- any, motivate anybody by guilt. That will last as long as it takes you to get to the front door, not even that long. However, questions like that are really good at diagnosing the state of our heart, right? And I tell you, there are some people who maybe have never told anybody about Jesus because they really haven't been rescued. That's something to consider. Here, I close out this third point. A guy set his timer for 9.38. Every day, 9.38 a.m., the alarm goes off, and he wanted to remind himself of Matthew 9.38 to pray that God would send forth labor. And and church, if if we're going to be serious about this matter of evangelism, we've got to be serious about prayer. We really do. We really do. We really do. I don't have time to tell you the full story, but Jeremiah Lamphere, just a businessman, New York, 1850s, 1860s, burdened for the state of the church and the lack of conversion and the lack of concern for loss and all of that. So he posted in the uh, window of his shop a prayer meeting 12 o'clock something Wednesday that week, and and 30 minutes into it, it was one hour long, nobody was there. When he was done, six people were there. Within weeks, 40 people were gathering. Within six months, 6,000 people across New York City were gathering in 150 spots, not just one day a week, but Monday through Friday. And within a year, it spread across the eastern seaboard, and it is said many labors entered the harvest and many people were genuinely converted upwards of 100,000 in this awakening. Yeah, we need to pray that the Lord would send forth laborers. King's mission includes that. Now finally, we're gonna go really fast. Who Jesus sent. Jesus prayed, but he also acted. (laughs) And he actually, at he cast out He thrust into the harvest the very man, men he had told to pray for laborers, these disciples. There's 12 of them, 12 disciples, verse one, 12 apostles, verse two. And again, there's so much here, but let me give you a few things before I get to the point I wanna make. What's the big deal about 12? A lot of things, but one of the things it reminds us is, these 12 apostles, in a sense, were fulfillment of the 12 tribes of Israel who were intended to be a blessing to all the nations. Now, if you could go to a spirituallineage.com or .org or whatever, and it wasn't a scam like a lot of these lineage things are, frankly, from what I've read, not all of them. But if there was a spiritual one, you could trace your spiritual birthright back to the ministry of one of these apostles. God used them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're also reminded of the importance of leadership and structure. All four gospels have a list of the apostles. They all have variants, but here's the similarities. All of them have Peter at the top of the list. Most commentators say it's because he was the first among equals, he was a leader. They also have Philip in the same spot and John in the same spot, so there were leaders among the leaders. Much we could call from that. Jesus invested them with special authority, which I have to, I have to deal with this because people say, well, what this authority to cast out demons and all that. The authority he gives them to heal every disease, to cast out demons, is what the Bible would later call the signs of an apostle. You ever heard that expression? Second Corinthians 12, 2, look it up. They were given special gifts called the signs of an apostle. An apostle was somebody who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since Jesus Christ died and rose 2,000 years ago, there are no more apostles, okay? Not in this formal kind of way. So you might see a sign that says apostle so-and-so, it's just not true. There was only one apostle who was not a witness of the resurrection, the apostle Paul born out of two dime and he actually did see him in his risen state. And we should have no problem understanding some people in the early church had gifts that we simply do not. For instance, is anybody here writing scripture? Anybody here? Because if you you oh, are, we need to have a talk. It was a special gift, right? Revelation. So I, I just want to clear that. Now, the abiding authority based on the Great Commission, based on Acts chapter 1, 8 and scores of other verses is that we need to tell the gospel. Jesus still has given us that authority. And I'm not saying that demons still aren't cast out and people aren't healed. Yes, there is ministries like that, okay? I don't have enough time to go through everything that I prepared, But here, here's the takeaway from this fourth point. It's this. If God can use them, he can use you. If God can use them, He can use you. These men were decidedly not superstar scholars who, who, who were just so spiritual. They never messed up. They never sinned. They walked out their faith perfectly. Not at all. Well, four of them were fishermen. One of them was a dreaded tax collector. That's like a Benedict Arnold. One of them, this is interesting, may have been a horse rancher, Philippines lover of horses. I don't know to make too much of that, but it could be. Some of them we just don't really know anything about. There were no names, Thaddeus. But how about Peter, the leader? You know, Peter denied Jesus Christ to a young lady to save his neck or so he thought. Do you know that at one time he succumbed to the sins of fear of man and ethnic partiality? In the book of Galatians? Paul actually has to get in his face. He's the leader. That's some clay feet right there, right? How about James and John? James and John, I think they had a helicopter mom. Because the mom says to Jesus, hey, can my boy sit on your left hand and right hand when you come in your kingdom? And he's like, you don't even know what you're asking, woman. And you think of John being this meek guy, right? Laid his hand, head on the chest of Jesus. Probably not the case. You know what Jesus called James and John? Sons of Thunder, sounds like a motorcycle club. (laughs) Probably referencing the intensity of these men. In fact, when they're preaching the gospel and a Samaritan village won't repent, they say, Jesus, should we call down fire on these guys? So that's what he was working with there. And then you have Simon the Zealot. Oh, some people really went like him. He was a part of a group of militant nationalists, okay? Constantly leading insurrection against the Romans. He's part of Jesus' team. And then you have this, Judas. Judas, predestined for destruction. We'll get to him in Matthew 26. But as someone, by the way, influential in your life, whether in your conversion, in your growth, deconstructs apostatizes. Don't wig out. It's happened before. He was the son of destruction. And then you have Paul. You say, well, yeah, you haven't covered my background. I got a rap sheet. The apostle Paul murdered Christians, and God used him as the apostle to the Gentiles. So yeah, yeah, you've messed up. Yeah, you still have issues. Yeah, you're a work in progress, but God can use you. And here's the really cool thing. And using the 12, he was actually growing them and exposing the one. But growing them in a way that he would not, they would not have grown otherwise. See, when you, when you, when you have this sense of akbalo, because you got splach nitsumai, you, you, you grow compassion, and you want to do something, you you will pray like you've never prayed before. You will get into the word like you've never gotten into it before. You'll you'll, you'll be a little bit more intentional about how you walk and trying to apply the gospel. You'll, You'll see the significance of the family of God, the church to equip you and to encourage you and to empower you to go with the gospel. And it may be, it may be that if you step out, you might realize, I don't think I'm a Christian. That's what, sometimes it's exposing. There are people who say, you know what, I didn't actually, there's testimonies. People, two testimonies. I didn't think, I realized, I don't think I was a Christian when they they really squared up with this. And then people who were Christians said, I'll tell you what, here's what grew me more than anything else, deciding, God, use me. Because it made me rely on all the means of grace in a way I never had to before. So, the king's mission means intentionally placing yourself at the service of the Lord. Instead of just coasting along or believing the good lie that God can't use you, are you willing to say this morning, here am I, Lord? Would you use me? Are you willing to do that? He will use you as you commit to that. Father, so much here, I feel like people got water hosed. Um, But thank you for the King's mission. Lots of expressions of physical compassion, but ultimately it is verbal. It must be motivated by compassion. Must be fueled by prayer. And a willingness with all of our mess ups and sins to say, here am I, Lord, use me. Lord, I pray to the blood of Jesus Christ with everything in me that there would be a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, upon whom this truth would really land, that there would be a sense within the heart of that person, I need to care about the lost. If I'm part of the king's kids, I need to get with the king's commission. And Father, I ask that you would remind them that you use broken vessels so that it's clear that the excellency of the power belongs to you, not to us. Lord, would you stir up your people to say, here am I, Lord, use me. And I pray for anybody here today who has never repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. Lord, that even right now, in their hearts, they would turn to you, and then with their mouths, they would confess Jesus. Uh, Lord, even to those that are around them, whoever brought them. Father, would we sing now, in a way that we desire to seal these truths deeper into our heart. O oh, church, arise. May we do that. In Jesus' name, amen.